This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And one of the most important subjects we talk about in this show is marriage. And that brings us to our Relationship Story Hour with our friend J.P. DeGantz. He runs a group called Communio. Communio is committed to healing marriages, and they do amazing work across the country. And you're about to hear from two people, Tad and April O'Brien, and about the trials they face both to be together and to stay together. Here's J.P. with their story. For everyone... Our earliest memories shape us in ways that affect our entire lives. And April, who we're about to hear from, is really no exception. I grew up with my mom for the most part. My mom and dad divorced, I think I was like four or five years old. She ended up marrying this guy who was very abusive. He would beat up on my little brother and he was only like, like three, four years old. And he would like beat him like a grown man. But me and my brother actually um, moved back with my dad. It was complete opposite. She was in church. I would never, ever see a fight between them. Like, it was one extreme to the next. Like, I would see this craziness with my mom, and then my dad and my stepmom never fought. Like, she would get upset with him because when they would argue, he wouldn't even say anything. And it was the complete opposite of what I saw, you know, from, from that. And I was like, okay, that's... I'd much rather have that than that, you know. And I always knew I would never put up with what my mom put up with. And while learning from others' mistakes can be a good thing, it would also become an obstacle for April. I grew up in church. Like, we would have to go to church on a regular basis. Like, we had a revival. We would be in church seven days a week. I liked it when I was younger, but when I got to be about a te- mid-teenage years, I was like, God, this sucks. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. And so eventually, when I got to be about 17, I just rebelled. And I'm like, I'm not going anymore, you know, and I stopped going altogether. But was out of church for about 10 years. You know, I had been through a couple of relationships. I, had, I got married um, right after high school. We had children. Um, and then we ended up divorcing. He was an alcoholic. He wasn't abusive or anything like that. It was more verbally abusive. But uh, it was just where it just unhealthy. It's just like constant fighting around my my kids, and I was like, I didn't want them to see that, and that's why I ended that relationship. But I was thinking to myself, you know, this is kind of what what I had to grow up seeing. I'm not going to have my kids grow up seeing this because it's just not healthy. And then I went to college, ended up meeting my husband, my ex-husband. Everything was great. We had children, and he really became the father to my kids for my first marriage because their dad was never involved and he was out of the picture. We ended up, you know, growing apart over years because I was more very self-centered when I was younger because it was all about me. I'm like, I'm not happy, so why should I have to be in this situation? He was having a hard time holding a job and it was just, I lost respect for him and a lot for me, if I lose respect for someone, then it's hard for me to get that back. But I felt like I didn't feel like the love was there to the point of where it was fair to keep going. And I don't know how I would have handled it if I had been in a different relationship with Jesus at the time. If I would have just stuck it out and been like, you know what? This is what I decided to do, so I'm sticking it out, you know. 
you know, we divorced and I was just going through this dating world. And I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to think about getting married. I don't want to get married again. I'm, I'm good with this, you know? So, and I'm just like all in for church. Like I'm all about Jesus and I'm all about like just trying to become a better person and just, you know, realizing kind of some of the things about my life that, you know, I've made decisions that were very self-centered and just very self-focused. And I think God puts us in a Every locate, every time, every place he puts us into, I think he puts us there so we can grow and so we can become, you know, maybe a blessing or a message for someone else to kind of get through. So now we meet Tad. Tad's early life, while perhaps less turbulent, was no less formative. My parents uh, got divorced when I was five. I remember that, you know, still to this day, that was pretty traumatic. I remember crying about that, but um, wasn't sure what all was going on, especially at that young age. So a couple years went by, you know, it was just my brother and I and my mom. But then probably when I was in the second grade, she got remarried for the first time, you know, uh, to a stepfather. Uh, Then they got divorced when I was in seventh grade. It was bad for me as far as, man, you know, here we are going through another divorce, but uh, not bad as in fighting and screaming or any of that kind of stuff. A few more years went by and I'd say probably in high school, Uh, sometime maybe junior year my mom got married again and I didn't you know when you're in high school you're kind of off doing your own thing so I didn't really know the guy that well he he was a nice guy he seemed nice whenever I saw him Um, and then when I went away to college you know she was still married to this guy and they had packed up and moved to Florida once my brother and I were out of the house once I got out of college. I stuck around my hometown working. Uh, I was a computer programmer. And uh, there was a girl that I had met. She kind of pursued me more than I pursued her. Everything was fun, 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 because I would only see her on the weekends and then off to work on, on the weekdays. I had gotten laid off from a job. My girlfriend and I had talked about moving in together uh, to save money. And she had two kids from a previous marriage and they were quite young. And so I moved in there and things were going pretty well, but it wasn't quite the same as just having fun on the weekends. Now it was, you know, you're in a family situation. And um, so anyway, I was looking for work and nothing was coming up. So I lived there for, you know, like a year maybe, you know, before anything really popped up. I would do odds and ends jobs, but it wasn't the computer programming that I was really looking for. Little did he know that when he found what he was looking for, it would bring with it a big decision. Without steady employment, Tad was becoming restless. That, coupled with the adjustment to domestic life with his girlfriend and her two young boys, caused him to search for a change of pace. This was in the wintertime, and I'm, my back is sore from shoveling snow and clearing my drive. I said, you know, I can be a programmer anywhere. I, I don't have to be in Chicago or St. Louis or in the Midwest. I can go down to Florida. And so I put my resume out on the Internet. Sure enough, I got a job down in Florida. I was really excited, and I remember telling her, hey, I got this job in Florida. Isn't that awesome? And instead of the excitement that I was expecting from her face, I got completely the opposite, and I said, why are you not as happy as I am? And she said, because, you know, when you were in Chicago or St. Louis, that's only a couple hours drive, that's not a big deal, but 
Now you're going all the way to Florida. This is basically a make or break deal for us. It didn't dawn on me. Maybe I didn't like her as much as she liked me. And so now I was faced with a tough decision about where's our relationship gonna go and am I gonna take her to Florida? So me being the kind of guy that wasn't the person that could sit by themselves. I always needed other people, so I said, come on, let's go to Florida. You know, we're gonna, we're gonna start a family. I thought, why not, you know? We rented a place and everything was good and all, but, you know, I figured I'm all in, right? So we get married not too long after she moves down. And we were married for about five years, and the marriage didn't go as good as what I was hoping it would. I think that um, even though she loved me very much and I tried to reciprocate that at least for a while, I knew deep down that I wasn't really giving her what she was looking for and um, I was really self-absorbed. You know, I, I think I only really cared about what I cared about and to heck with every, everybody else, right? And so she was getting pushed away and pushed away and she would tell me that she's not happy and I wouldn't really listen. And so she started seeing somebody else while we were still married. We ended up getting divorced, but it was a real messy deal. It was so bad that the only way that I really knew that we were going to get divorced is because um, her and I had two children. And so I would take them to a daycare that was right next to my work. One day when I drove them home, there was a knock on the door and nobody would answer the door. And so I opened the door and it's a police officer there. And the police officer tells me that I had 15 minutes to get some things together and I had to get out. And I said, what are you talking about? And he told me that my wife had filed a physical grievance against me or or something like that. And uh, it was all made up. I didn't know what he was talking about. I'm thinking about a million miles per hour, like what is going on here? Total confusion and shock. As a matter of fact, the officer had to come help me get some stuff because I just was like moving slow motion. He um, escorts me to my car and then I had to be gone and he told me I couldn't come within 500 feet of my house. It was just bizarre. I couldn't have anything to do with the children. And you know, that went from driving my kids to school to eating lunch with them and then to driving them back home to, to nothing. You know, you never get to go back home. Seeing your kids is a long drawn out process. When we went through our divorce, it, it was revealed that she had, you know, that was a false claim, um, that she had done that so that the courts would look more favorable on her and having full custody of the kids. The judge told her that unless he is a murderer or something to that level, you know, we're not, we're not gonna split the kids up. It's always gonna be, we strive for a 50-50 timeshare, you know, so. The divorce finally went through and I ended up being the, the parent who the kids lived with because of her, her false claims, uh, even though we still had 50-50 timeshare. And so everything was starting to look up and, you know, getting better. And so that lasted for about a year until she ended up dying in a car accident. And then it was bad because my kids were still young, but I needed to deal with, I don't want the kids really to know 
exactly what happened because I don't want it to be traumatic, I, I'll tell them something, but it's not going to be, you know, that uh, the the truth just yet. You know, it it will be that the mother passed away, but it's not going to be, you know, from a car accident or something of that nature. But um, I thought everything would be easier, but it it really was a lot worse. I mean, you know, being divorced and and trying to get back up on your feet, and now you know, raising your children alone and still having to go to work and just everything was mounting up on me. And I thought, man, I need some help. You know, I can't, I can't do this all by myself. Recognizing his own limits, Tad looked for a community that would help him grow. In churches, divorce is understandably a topic that's a bit taboo. And this can stigmatize those who have gone through it, creating a sense of isolation, both for those who have gone through it and for those who are struggling now in their marriage. But what occurs when a church, acting like a field hospital, reaches out to those wounded by a failed marriage? So I started plugging into a church that um, I, I looked and I saw who has a program called Divorce Care. And what divorce care did for me was it helped me cope with not only the divorce, but everything else that was going on in my life. And it also helped me realize that nobody goes into a marriage saying, hey, my goal is to get divorced, right? I mean, it takes two. I forgave my ex-wife and asked for forgiveness for myself. One of the best things that happened out of it was not only did I develop a relationship with Jesus, and the church and start going as a regular member in the church, but I also started um, regaining a sense of self so that if, if and when I got into another relationship, it wasn't going to be carrying any bad habits or luggage or anything with me into the other relationship. It was gonna be, hey, this is who I am. I've got nothing to hide and I have dealt with my past problems. Anyway, it was about that time I was getting plugged into the church and everything and then decided that, you know, I'll try to do a few dates just to kind of get back on my feet. So I joined one of those websites, which I kind of embarrassed to say that I did. I was um, account manager for a company, um, a dating company, it's just lunch. I heard all these crazy horror stories about online dating and that was one of my biggest objections. A lot of my clients would be like, Oh my gosh, these online dating apps are crazy. I meet so many psychos and I'm like, oh, I know. That's why you have to go with It's Just Lunch. You know, we set you up. It's one-on-one -on -one dates. You know, you're going to have your matchmaker ha handling this for you, right? And I'm like, I'm going to try this online dating thing because I don't believe it. And I'm like the type of person that was like, I would like to learn for myself, you know, but I was very particular. I did go out on a couple dates and, and they were okay. I mean, I was kind of using them as a tool anyway. I wasn't really necessarily thinking I was gonna meet Miss Wright. And so I did a few things right and I did a few things wrong. I wasn't really getting where I thought I should be getting on the dates, on the dating website. So I was gonna like hang it up and maybe just try to find somebody at church or something, or maybe I was just gonna relax and just let it come. <laughs> I'm very direct, but I'm also very fun and, and silly. 
but I was also very serious about my relationship with God and I was that was number one priority for me and, and, and even said like I think I had made a statement in my profile I was like if you're looking for a hookup or booty call you might as well just pass on by because I'm not even interested to even talk to you so I'd get all these random people and I would just totally ignore everybody right and I didn't really for the first like two to three days so many came through and I'm like oh my gosh I cannot even sift through this so I was just like go away you know I was just no it was just a lot the only one that like see I was going through the sites or whatever and I came across his profile and she said I came across his profile and I remember the day I came across my bride's profile Valerie I uh, was on Match.com, and it just started. Nobody was doing online dating. And there she was, and there I was. And they're not all psychos online. Well, at least most of them aren't. When we come back, more of Tad and April's story. And by the way, some of the things Tad said, nobody gets married thinking, I'm going to get divorced. And so many of our churches, civic organizations, it is taboo. Because to talk about someone else's problem marriage means you have to talk about your own. And it's just, well, like money, sex, and marriage. You know, people don't like to talk about it. They'll lie. They'll, they'll be silent about it. And it's almost a shameful part of their lives that they just want to conceal. And we're trying to bring that to light and to life. And the final portion of Tad and April's story. Both Tad and April were trying their hand at online dating. And after a series of dates with other people, these two met. Something about Tad really caught April's eye. And I was like... I was going through and reading his profile, and I was like, he's so cute. He was the one and only message I ever sent on any dating app ever. So I sent him a message, and I was like, hi, just wanted to say I like your profile picture. Right about the time when I was getting ready to get off the dating sites, then April had commented on a picture that I had on there where I was. Uh, I'm a big Disney World fan, so I was dressed up in a Halloween vampire uh, for Halloween down there. And so she saw that and she made a comment. We didn't date as long as what I would have liked to have dated. I thought that maybe we would date for a year or so at least. You know, we finally introduced each other to each other's uh, kids and, and everybody seemed to get along well. Things were really going almost too perfect. So we decided all right, let's do this. And we went out to Las Vegas and did um, a quick wedding. So anyway, we get married and everything's going pretty good. And we, we did not live together before that. You know, we, we were not having sex. We did not live together now that we are into the church. But one hiccup that happened right when we got back from our wedding really was she told me that she was going to visit her daughter, her oldest daughter, who lived in Dallas. And I thought, what? You know, we're, don't we need to, like, talk this out? Like, don't we need to plan this out? Don't we need to have a buy-in from both of us? I mean, we're married now. We're not single still, you know? We were both very much, very independent leaders of our home. I led my home. He led his home. So when you bring those two dynamics together from not even living in the same house to even know how the other person works or whatever, it's a it's going to be a, a rude awakening in a lot of ways, even down to the point of how we set up the house. You know, in hindsight, it's not as big a deal because we've dealt with it. But at the time, you know, that hit me. You're like, 
we're married, but we're living single. I didn't give her everything because I didn't know where I stood or what I was going to get back or what our relationship was even like. She picked up on that and she reacted um, in a like manner on her part towards me and so we started having some problems. We both are very much strong-minded and we don't really back down in that regard so we had we have to work on that. That's something that we one of us has to secede to the other uh, in a way but not in a sense that we're disrespecting that other person, right? So that's where we have had to kind of work towards getting that way. A lot of times we see things exactly the same way, but we argue over them just to freaking argue. Like, what's the point of arguing? I have a different, we'll see the exact same situation. We're saying the same thing. I'm saying it one way, he's saying it the other way, and we're arguing over it. Uh, one specific uh, issue we've had is, with the boys like they're at the you know the preteen stage and they're very they're very rude I do not handle disrespect at all very well he's way more accepting of it than I am so he'll put up with more things from them than I will so over time I became I'm like the bad one and then dad's the pushover like nice one that they they're not afraid of dad but they're afraid of mom in my prior marriage I was the stepdad and I knew that I was coming down a little bit hard on her kids. I felt that in this marriage, April being the stepmom was coming down a little hard on my kids. And some things like the disrespect, yes, I agree that you know the kids should not be disrespectful. Although I felt that from April's perspective, everything was black and white and there was no gray area. You know, sometimes the kids just want to say their peace and I'm not saying that they need to talk back for every situation I'm not saying that I'm saying that you know if you ask them why they did something and then you don't give them a chance to answer why did they do something and you ground them or you get on them you know that I feel that's not right you know if you ask them a question then let them say what their answer is and then you talk through it I'm an analytical person I want to understand what is the reason why you're thinking a certain way and why did you act in a certain way and so when I talk to my children and I try to um, show them what was the error in their ways and what they could have done better that is something that I uh, and April have had many disagreements upon because I want to know why they did what they did and what I can help them do to correct that behavior. And if you don't correct it, then we're going to have consequences, right? Instead of jumping straight to the consequences. And these disagreements, like many, led to arguments. They got pretty bad to where we thought maybe this was not a good idea to get married at such a short dating period. We had already had so many issues and I was just so fed up with the constant arguing and the constant bickering and just the stuff that was going on a daily basis. I was at the point, literally, I was leaving this relationship. I, it had already been four years at this point. I was I was ready to go. I was like, you know what? I'm not putting up with this anymore. I've already, I'm, I've, you know, my, I'm with you. I'm with your boys and my family is in Texas and I have nothing here. Nothing is here. My oldest son was in the Navy, and I was like, the only thing I have is you and the boys here, and why would I stay in this relationship when I feel so unwanted and unwelcome, you know? 
But instead of going about things the way they had in previous relationships, Tad and April decided to make a change. We knew that before anything else, let's, let's go get some help because I think we have something here. We're just not, we're just too dumb or too young to, you know, get, get to where we need to be. And we need some help. So we went to um, live the life and we did the marriage, the adventures in marriage. And wow, did that really open our eyes to some things. Um, it taught us how to have disagreements and arguments and fights uh, in a way that weren't yelling and screaming like we had been fighting and we didn't hold back. I mean, we brought some stuff out that, you know, you probably really shouldn't say to another person. When we went through the Adventures in Marriage, we were like, you know, we really could do something with this. Like, we could actually host this type of curriculum for other couples, you know, because, you know, even though we're still working through it ourselves and learning and getting better, um, I feel like it would be a blessing for them because people need to learn from other people's experiences. That's why, you know, we become a blessing for other people. And that's why I think God gives, you know, God puts a, a situation, you know, He lets us go through these certain situations so that we can come out on the other side so that we can be a story or we can be a blessing or assistance for someone else who might be going through that in that moment, you know. So that's kind of where we, you know, we've always had a heart for, for other couples and just kind of for, you know, kind of restoration in homes and marriages and just in freedom in general. Like that's very important to us. And you're listening to the story of Tad and April. And I'm not sure Tad knew it, but by the end of year four, April was out. And that happens in relationships, folks. Somebody's checking out. You just don't know it until they announce their plans. And it probably took April a long time to get to that point. But something was different. There was a program, and they went into it. And they learned how to negotiate and navigate their fights, how to do fights well, because we're all going to fight. And, of course, how to deal with the baggage. And, of course, in the end, Communio had offered up services through local, through local organizations and through this church, and ultimately the fruits of that program. Well, you could hear it in April's voice, and now they're teaching others as they're learning themselves, because anyone who's married and says, oh, I have it down, I got it, is just crazy, right? Any of you older married people know this. And to learn more, by the way, about Communio, go to communio.org. Again, for civic organizations, churches, go to communio.org. They're life savers and marriage savers. Our relationship story, our at an April story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time 
for one of our favorite segments, the story of a song. And today's comes from an artist whose songs are best known through cover versions by other musicians. His Jersey Girl was performed by Bruce Springsteen. His All 55 was sung by the Eagles. Down There by the Train by Johnny Cash. I Hope That I Don't Fall in Love with You by 10,000 Maniacs. The Long Way Home by Nora Jones. I Don't Want to Grow Up by the Ramones. And Downtown Train by Rod Stewart. And by the way, just from the mix of those artists, you've got to say, wow, what range. Today's song is about one man, one woman, and one tavern. With no further ado, let's take a listen to find out more about this one-of-a-kind American singer-songwriter. Our next guest is one of the most distinctive writers and performers working today. He's kind of a combination poet, jazz singer, and vagrant. He is a mix- mixture of um, Satchmo Armstrong and Humphrey Bogart. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tom Waits. How are you, Tom? Oh, I'm better than nothing. Your songs are about waitresses and bartenders and bums. Why do you celebrate these people in song? For the same reason that a lawyer hangs out in a pool room or how do you find a lot of photographers at a wedding, you know? Because I uh, find a lot of ideas here and there's a lot of life going on around here. And, um, you know, so I'm uh, kind of a bit of a private investigator, maybe, you know. You know, my dad spent a lot of time in the bars. My dad drank in the afternoon in really dark bars. So I was drawn to dark places. Everybody needs a different climate in order to create. Mine usually comes in, uh, if I'm talking with somebody in a bar or something, I uh, get a couple of loggers and uh, try to stretch out in conversation. I try to open things up, and then uh, I try to remember it all later and then I write it down. There's a, a real romance to hanging around these places. It's where you go to meet girls, but it's also where you go to invent yourself in strangers' eyes. He's an extraordinary painter of pictures, as well as a teller of stories. Looking for the heart of Saturday night Tell me is it the crack of the pool balls Neon buzzing Loneliness, it's so much at the heart of so much of his music, I think. It's just a longing for something and being alone and how do you live with that and how do you deal with it? Magic or the melancholy tearing your eyes. I think Waits is a poet of doomed no-hopers. People who are almost like characters from a noir novel. They're getting their last chance at love. He was just a man out of time, clearly, and he knew it, I think, <laughs> obviously, and he, he played with it. The craft and young genius of someone who was coming up with lyrics that were on a par with someone like Johnny Mercer or Hoagy Carmichael or any of the songwriters that had been the backbone of the classic American songbook. That's why I'm always on the run. 
The Great American Songbook is something that either gets to you or it doesn't, and it got to Tom because there was a lot of intelligence in that, in the lyrics of those songs. I would go over to my friends' houses and go into the den with their dads and find out what they were listening to. I couldn't wait to be an old man. I was about 13 now. I didn't really identify with the music of my own generation, but I seemed to like the old stuff, Cole Porter and Gershwin and Frank Sinatra. What is this thing called love? Tom had that wonderful talent to absorb all of these things this that he saw. It's like storing up paints and being able to dig out the colors you want when you get ready to paint a picture. This is what he does. He paints pictures. And so true. And one of Tom Waits' most heartbreaking, beautiful picture songs is called I Hope That I Don't Fall In Love With You. This tender storyteller with a boozy baritone while wearing a $7 suit and an old man's weathered fedora hat expresses what a billion men have felt not the least on a lonely Saturday night. Here's I hope that I don't fall in love with you. One, two, three, four. Well, I hope that I don't fall in love with you. Makes me blue. Well, the music plays and you display your heart for me to see. I had a beer and now I hear you calling out for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
you'd like some company Well, I turn around to look at you You look back at me Guy you with these up and split the chair next to you's free And the turn in the fourth phrase, I hope that you don't fall in love with me. After exposing all of his fears of commitment, the narrator realizes he is falling for this girl that he's never met, but now must face the realization she may return the favor. You can feel the pain of a man afraid of commitment in this song. He fumbles and worries, and once he finally gets the confidence to face her, well, it's too late. She's gone, and he knows he's missed his shot. And that's the world of Tom Waits. That's the world he inhabited in his music. I was always wanting to be an old man, he said, listening to Sinatra when everybody else was listening to rock and roll. The loneliness, by the way, in Sinatra's music, too. You want to hear a great hour. Listen to our hour on the life of Frank Sinatra here on Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. And again, the work of Tom Waits, the life of Tom Waits, the story of a song, I hope I don't fall in love with you. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And today we're diving into one of my favorite books of the year. And we do a lot of books here on the show. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and see all that we do. And while we're there, or while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. And again, that's ouramericannetwork.org. You'll get our five best stories of the week. And the book is Kicks by Nicholas Smith. And it's all about the history of sneakers. Before we start the story, Nicholas, I want to read two things from your prologue. Quote, sneakers can help us stand out 
or blend in. They can be the item we build our outfits up from or an afterthought we slip on before running out the door. And every sneaker we wear says something about us in both subtle and not-so-subtle ways. This was something I never actually thought about until I did. Was this true with you, and what led you to write this history of the sneaker? Well, I'm not what you would call uh, a traditional sneakerhead. I don't have a closet full of 50 different rare sneakers that are you know, limited edition or things like this. Uh, I approached this story from a runner's perspective. I, uh, running is my hobby, so most of my sneakers are kind of running sneakers. And the more I researched the story, the more I kind of saw the appeal of shoes as a fashion item. It's not something I really sat down to, to think about. You know, like many people, I had maybe just one pair of casual sneakers to, to go outside and go to uh, the grocery store with. But as I researched more into this, I started to see kind of the appeal of having a sneaker for this outfit or a sneaker for that outfit. Here's a very common item that for some people, it is, it is the basis of their outfit and everything that they're building up from kind of rests on the sneaker. And for other people, it's the complete afterthought. It's the last thing that they throw on before going out the door. And I think that's that's really the, the most interesting thing about sneakers. Indeed. And my 13-year-old girl, the poor shoe people, because she has almost no shoes. She and all of her friends have 8, 10, and 12 pairs of sneakers for precisely the reasons you discussed, Nicholas. So it's an interesting trend, what's happening with younger people. You also wrote this in the prologue. The history of the sneaker is, in a sense, the recent history of the United States. I thought that was such an absurd statement when I read it, Nicholas. And that is until I started reading the book and the story. So let's start off at the beginning with the story of Charles Goodyear. Talk about this American innovator and businessman, because it's quite a story. We can't really tell the uh, the history of the sneaker or really many of the other objects that are everyday objects without telling the history of industry. And to go back to the beginning, to the Industrial Revolution, uh, Charles Goodyear was an inventor, kind of a, a tinkerer, a person who would be stuck in his basement trying to solve the problem of rubber. Now, the problem of rubber in the early uh, Industrial Revolution was it was very susceptible to temperature. Uh, when it was cold, it would turn brittle. When it was hot, it would melt. So as you can imagine, rubber products weren't very versatile. Uh, Goodyear uh, had the idea that rubber could be stabilized. And through his years and years of tinkering with different mixtures, different ways of preparing it, he perfected vulcanized rubber, which uh, is more resilient uh, to temperature. Now, without vulcanized rubber, we couldn't have, of course, uh, sneaker soles, but we also couldn't have uh, car tires or you, you know, so many different parts uh, that we rely on uh, today. So this was kind of a very uh, important uh, invention that Goodyear stumbled upon. Indeed it was, but before sneakers could take off, we also needed the idea of leisure time. That, too, would develop as America and the world industrialized. Yeah, people forget that the concept of the weekend is kind of a, a very new concept. Now, kind of the forerunner to the weekend and vacations for the working class was called Wakes Weeks. Now, in Britain, during the Industrial Revolution, they would have to close the factories periodically to uh, you know, maintenance the machines and do service work. And during this time, the workers would take their holidays or, or what we would call holidays. 
what was once the area of just the upper class, just having uh, so much free time that you could devote to hobbies or different things was finally starting to trickle down to everyone else. And you know, to fill that free time, we saw the growth of sports, of games, of hobbies, of many different things. And let's talk about one of those sports. Let's talk about James Naismith. Who was he for folks who aren't avid basketball fans? And why is he such a big figure in your story? So James Naismith, of course, was the inventor of basketball. He was also a teacher at a, a YMCA. Now, as the story goes, it was a very cold, very dark winter near the turn of the century, and uh, his students were stuck inside, and he didn't know what to do with them. You know, those days, physical activity was calisthenics, aerobics, gymnastics, not something that's very competitive. So Naismith nailed up two peach baskets, one on each side of his gymnasium, and he had a, a soccer ball with him, and he had, you know, Two teams trying to get that basketball into the peach basket on either side. What he found was his, his students took to it very quickly. He wrote down the rules and had them published in an academic journal, and this eventually spread to other YMCAs and then to other schools and then to other uh, universities across the country. So the game of basketball kind of benefited from having that set of rules travel around so quickly. Who's Chuck Taylor? We've seen his name stitched on Converse. He was a big player in your story. Now, Chuck Taylor isn't one of those figures uh, like that that was invented for a brand. He was an actual person. Converse was a company that's been around 100 years now today. But when uh, Chuck Taylor joined the company, it was the 1920s. Uh, He had just finished a very short career as a professional basketball player. And uh, when I say professional in those days, it's kind of more what we would consider uh, a semi-professional basketball player. But he wasn't very distinguished even among the players of the day. But he did have a good knowledge of the game. And this is what he brought to Converse when he was a salesman. He would travel from town to town putting on these basketball clinics. He's kind of the uh, the Johnny Appleseed figure of basketball. So in every town that he would visit, every clinic he would put on in schools or universities, he would teach the basics, he would teach some tricks. And, you know, of course, there was that little marketing message in there that, you know, in order to play basketball really well, you would need these Converse All-Star shoes. And after years of success, he decided to name the All-Star the Chuck Taylor shoe. So this is why, to this day, you, you see his name stitched on Converse Chuck Taylors everywhere in the world. And when we come back, more with Nicholas Smith. The book Kicks, the great American story of sneakers. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Nick Smith talking about his book, Kicks. We were just learning about the origin of Chuck Taylor's sneakers, shoes named after a salesman who was basketball's Johnny Appleseed. Can you think of a single product that's named after the salesman in a company, not the CEO, not the patriarch, the salesman? Because I racked my brain, Nicholas, and I couldn't think of one. 
you know, off the top of my head, no. And I'm sure if I thought about it for another couple hours, I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't think of any. And that kind of speaks to the marketing genius that uh, Chuck Taylor had. One of the other things that Converse did to kind of develop the game further is they published this uh, yearbook, kind of a who's who book of basketball of the day. So if your team wanted to be in the yearbook, you just had to send a photo of your, your team in and where you played and, and who all the players were. And of course, you had to wear the, uh, the Converse uh, you know, shoes in, in the, uh, the picture. But uh, in this book, Chuck Taylor would say, you know, here's, the, here's some tricks of the game. Here are the best players playing the game, you know, traveling from town to town. He really had an eye for who was good, who was an up-and-coming college player and Coaches called him for advice on, well, who should my scouts go after? So he was kind of a, a self-developed expert in the game, and this earned him a place in the Basketball Hall of Fame. So, you know, here we have another example of a, a salesman not only having his name on a shoe, but ending up in a sports Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's remarkable how he deployed every tool in the toolkit to sell. And actually, it just sounded to me from reading your book that he didn't think of himself as a salesman, but an evangelist for this ministry called basketball. Exactly. And, you know, part of that comes from his connection to the game. Because he was an actual player, he saw maybe a different side of it that a normal salesman uh, wouldn't see. So there was a, uh, a level of expertise that also attracted people to these clinics. Here you would hear uh, a professional player really tell you how to play. Here, here are the real tricks. Here's what, here's what the people are actually wearing. So it, it did have a, uh, a certain degree of expertise when he went around. That's great. And let's talk about a track coach who had a tremendous impact on the world of sneakers, sports, and the culture. Let's talk about Bill Bowerman. He coached nine sub-four-minute milers at the University of Oregon, the most of any coach in America, four NCAA team championships, 24 NCAA individual titles, and coached 33 Olympians. Some call him the Bear Bryant, the Nick Saban of the running world. That's perfectly accurate. He really knew the sport in and out, but uh, he would do experiments with everything having to do with running. He would, in his backyard, mix up different combinations of rubber to create uh, you know, a good running surface to run on. He would make the clothes that his runners wore the, out of the lightest material he could find, but he also uh, experimented with shoes. You know, in those days, there weren't uh, as many choices for running shoes as we have today. He surmised that the best running shoe was probably one that was made specifically for the athlete. You didn't waste any extra material. It was it, it fit perfectly. It, it didn't have an extra ounce on it that it uh, that it didn't need to have. So he would use his runners as kind of human guinea pigs while making his uh, his own shoe concoctions. Over time, he got a little better and, and better at it. And uh, this caught the eye of one of his uh, former students, a uh, runner by the name of Phil Knight. Now, Phil Knight had just returned from a, uh, a trip to Japan, it was a business idea. And uh, while he was in Japan, uh, he met with the executives of a company called Onitsuka Tiger. Now, we, we kind of know this company more as ASICs today. Uh, but in the, uh, the 1960s, they were, they were tiger shoes. They were still you know, fairly good shoes. For the time, and Phil Knight says to his old coach, "Look, we can make you know 
some money importing these shoes, these Japanese shoes, to the U.S. market because they are of similar quality to the Adidas and Puma uh, shoes that are out there, but of course cost much less. So of course, Bowerman jumped at the chance not only to, uh, you know, to, to have a little side money, but to also have the ear of a shoe company that would finally listen to him. So of course, over time, their company, which is called Blue Ribbon Sports. Uh, gained more and more success, and they eventually spun off to a company that we know today as Nike. Now, the bones of Nike are built into, of course, running shoes and making kind of the, the perfect running shoe. So it, uh, it, it definitely came from an area of expertise. Indeed. And, and talk about a breakfast that changed Bowerman's life and waffles. Bowerman coached in Oregon. And uh, as, as we know, Oregon and the Pacific Northwest is very wet. You know, the running shoes of the day, the traction wasn't, wasn't great. Not, not enough to really grip mud, not enough to go over concrete very easily. And Bowerman was also obsessed with, with coming up some, some sort of pattern for the soul. And as the story goes, he's in the kitchen one Sunday. His wife is out. He sees the waffle iron, then he has an idea. It's like, wait a minute, the waffle pattern is the pattern I'm looking for. So he pours some molten rubber in the waffle iron, it gets stuck, and then he goes to the store to, to buy another waffle iron and, and you know does his test. And finally, he comes up with the, the waffle sole. Now, of course, the, the actual sole made for the shoes isn't made in the waffle iron. <laughs> the uh, waffle iron just provided the, the seed of the idea. But the, the waffle sole shoes proved to be a good enough grip for practically any surface. So this was kind of the, the beginning of the, uh, the jogging shoe uh, as we know it. And although jogging seems common and normal now, it wasn't always so, was it? You know, running as a hobby wasn't really, uh, wasn't really a thing. You know, if you went outside in the 50s and 60s and saw uh, someone running, it, uh, it would kind of strike you as odd. You know, the only, the only people that might go out jogging were you know, boxers training and kind of the, the local town nutcase, and that was it. <laughs> but in the 50s and 60s and, and going on to the 70s, it started to become kind of a, a new trendy thing to go outside and run just for exercise. When Bill Barman traveled to New Zealand with his uh, relay team, the coach there for the New Zealand Olympic team said, you know, why, why don't you come on a race uh, or just, just a Sunday run? with us who so says, okay, you know, track coach going on a run. Okay. It, it seems easy. But, uh, what he discovered was he, Bowerman couldn't keep up with, uh, with any of the people. And some of them were much, much older than him. They blazed by them. And he was wondering, okay, why, why is it that I can't keep up with these people, but they seem to just go for miles and miles. And the New Zealand track coach had a, a exercise regiment called jogging. So Bowerman took this idea, brought it back with him to, to Oregon, and kind of started the uh, very small jogging boom uh, in Oregon. So go across the coast to New York now. So another jogging boom was taking shape. Fred Lebo was working in the fashion industry in Manhattan, but he was also uh, an early jogger. And he is known today as the, the founder of the New York City Marathon. The early New York City marathons just went around Central Park a few times. But uh, Fred Lipo uh, had the idea that uh, by expanding the marathon across all five boroughs of the city, 
it can really kind of act as a uh, an advertisement uh, for New York, not just an advertisement for the city, but also as an advertisement for jogging. You know, one person was saying that the best singles bar in New York was Central Park because you can just go up to uh, someone else that was jogging and strike up a conversation. So what uh, Fred Lebo did and what uh, Bill Barman did was kind of start an exercise movement, kind of the first exercise fad uh, that the U.S. has known. Dr. Ken Cooper is my personal doctor. I'm pretty fortunate to have him uh, for my annual checkups. And he wrote a book called Aerobics, which you talk about here as well. You know, I talked to Dr. Cooper just before this interview. I said, you know, what, what should I talk to Nicholas Smith about? And he reminded me that back when he was doing his work, and he had trained NASA astronauts, uh, worked in the Air Force, a, a remarkable doctor. But he was on this quest to prove that exercise, jogging, aerobics, would actually increase life expectancies and health. And he wanted to get people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s to start running. The medical establishment came down on him like a ton of bricks, that 50-year-olds would be dying in the streets, that this was a terrible idea. Well, there, there was kind of this thought that, uh, you know, any, any sort of physical activity was uh, dangerous if you weren't, quote-unquote, the, the right person. And uh, this is kind of something that, uh, that uh, I'll, I'll come back to this New Zealand story that uh, Bill Barman went on. When he saw, you know, a man come to his aid that was not only older than him, uh, but had survived a heart attack, uh, this kind of, you know, woke something up in his mind that, you know, this, this cardiovascular exercise was in fact good for you. And, you know, what, what Dr. Cooper found was it, uh, you know, it doesn't matter really if you're young or old, if you're active, it does add years to your life. And when we come back, more of our conversation with Nicholas Smith, his terrific book, Kicks, the great American story of sneakers. is Our American Stories. We're back with Nicholas Smith, author of Kicks, the great American story of sneakers. And we were just talking about the rise of jogging and the start of the New York City Marathon. By the way, that first New York City Marathon you point out in the book had 55 finishers. That's, uh, that's quite, quite a movement from 55 to what we watch today on national television. Let's talk about women who were long excluded from running in marathons, even up to 1966. You tell one story of Bobby Gibb, who was 23. She entered the Boston Marathon, got her envelope, hoping to see an acceptance and a racing number. Instead, she found a note from the director of the race. I'm going to read it to you. Women aren't allowed and furthermore are not physiologically able. Talk about the reasons women were excluded from marathons and talk about one woman, Catherine Switzer, who changed everything. So uh, women weren't just uh, excluded from marathons. Uh, they were pretty much excluded from uh, every other sport all through the 70s. And uh, you know, even, 
college sports and women's colleges were uh, so segregated in the tens and the twenties that men weren't even allowed to to come and watch unless you were a, a relative of the women playing. It was considered uh, unladylike for uh, women to exert physical uh, activity. Now, um, that slowly and thankfully began to change in the 60s and the 70s. And Bobby Gibb was one of those people who kind of said, okay, I'm, I'm going to, to run the Boston Marathon, whether or not women are allowed to run or not. And, uh, you know, it did, um, it did have some, uh, some pushback. And one of the people that, uh, saw that pushback firsthand was, uh, Catherine Switzer, who was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon with a number. Now, she was able to enter by, uh, entering just her initials, KV Switzer, to get her number. But once one of the, uh, race officials, saw that a woman was running the Boston Marathon. He you know, walked onto the course. He tried to, to shove her saying, give me your number. And um, uh, Switzer's boyfriend kind of pushed him out of the way. And photographers riding by in a, in a truck caught all of this on camera. So all of this was on you know, newspapers uh, shortly afterwards. And you know, over time, uh, things started to relax in major races and women were allowed uh, to compete and there were women's only uh, races in the 70s or in the 80s and it uh, wasn't until the 1984 Summer Olympics that there was an actual women's marathon. All of this, by the way, Nicholas, was building up the market for running shoes and at the same time endorsements were also starting to influence the sneaker world. Before there was a Michael Jordan, there was a guy named Walt Clyde Frazier of the New York Knicks, and this is, by the way, back when they actually won games and even a championship or two. Well, uh, both Adidas and Puma uh, were starting to get the idea that, uh, you know, to sell a lot of shoes, we need to have a lot of people wear them. We needed to have a lot of players wear them. So uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, had signed with Adidas. Puma was looking for uh, a big star of the day to sign with. And Walt Frazier was kind of a, he's a very extravagant player, both on the court and off. He had a, a, a fashion sense that people used to tease him about. His, his nickname, Clyde, uh, kind of came from the movie Bonnie and Clyde because he had this uh, hat that reminded his uh, players uh, of the movie. So he was very fashion conscious. Uh, so Puma approached him uh, with an idea uh, to have a signature shoe. Now, this would have been, you know, the first professional uh, signature shoe basketball player. Now, you think, okay, well, what about, uh, you know, Chuck Taylor? That was also a signature shoe. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't made when he was still playing in the game. It was named afterwards. So, you know, Clyde would have this very stylish uh, shoe uh, that he would wear in the games. And, of course, this is a key moment because this is around the time when sneakers started to move off of the courts, off of the playing fields, and into everyday life. People started wearing them uh, around the street. So the Clyde shoe was very popular, especially in New York, because you had one of the biggest New York Nick players wearing a shoe that you could also buy and, you know, just wear with any sort of outfit. And besides that, he's a very, you know, fashion conscious, stylish player. So any way to emulate him that you can afford, especially the shoe, is, uh, is going to sell. Indeed. And by the way, it's the first suede shoe, which I, I remember because I had 
one of these Clydes. My goodness, if it rained, and you know New York weather, if it snowed, my Pumas, my Clydes never touched the ground. Yeah, there, there was, a, uh, I think, a Puma executive who said something along the lines of, you know, we, we love it when it rains in New York because, or when it rains or snows because that means we're going to sell a whole lot more suede shoes. Indeed. So uh, I, I don't know if it was a conscious decision uh, by, uh, by the company, but, uh, you know, you have to kind of be mindful of what the weather is like if you want to keep your sneakers looking very nice. And also in the 70s, a drought and water restrictions in California gave rise to a different type of fashionable sneaker, a more durable kind that could take the punishment dished out by skateboarders. Talk about that. This is one of my most favorite surprises of the things that I researched for this book. Now, skateboarding went through several different phases. In the 50s and 60s, there was kind of a, a sidewalk surfer craze where, you know, it was uh, something that you can do was kind of like surfing, but on land, but this eventually died out. But it wasn't really until uh, the 70s and the California drought in the middle of the 70s that skateboarding started to take shape as we would recognize it today. The, the reason that happened stretched back to Scandinavia, to an architect that designed a kidney-shaped pool. And another architect, very famous architect in California, saw this and brought that kidney-shaped pool to a house he was building in California. And of course, this uh, you know caught the idea eye of other developers and suddenly kidney-shaped pools were everywhere in California. So fast forward to the 1970s, you have this drought. Uh, there's not water to have in the pool, so all the pools are empty. So the, uh, the kids that are skateboarding are skateboarding because maybe the waves are flat that day. They're, they're, they come from a surfing background. And then they see these empty pools all over the city with uh, curved and sloped sides. So perfect for riding a skateboard up and down. And eventually they found that they can go very fast down these pool walls, shoot themselves up and do tricks in the air and then land. And this sort of thing was unheard of in skateboarding at the time. Tricks would be kind of, um, you know, handstands on a skateboard. This, this would be a good trick, not, uh, you know, flying through the air, turning around a few times and then landing. So as this kind of gonzo approach to skateboarding uh, happened, it started to gain more and more popularity as kind of a, an underground youth thing. But where shoes come into play is, as you can imagine, if you're going up and down pools, you know, you're going to fall, your shoes are going to take a beating. And there's this company called Vans, the, the Van Dorn Rubber Company that was based in California. And uh, they were famous for, you know, not making uh, mass-produced shoes that were the same everywhere. If you wanted to have a shoe in a certain pattern, they would make it for you. They, they had the, uh, the shoemaking machinery. They had the uh, retail outlets. So they were really kind of, uh, you know, completely vertically integrated. And after a while, they saw that, you know, people were demanding shoes that kind of uh, needed to hold up um, to a, a beating. They were, van shoes were tougher uh, than other shoes at the time. So skateboarders of the day kind of gravitated towards this, that, you know, it's better to buy a, uh, a shoe that was more durable than a shoe that would you know, fall apart and you would have to replace over and over. So the uh, skateboarders that were skating the pools, they, um, you know, tended towards van shoes because they were tough and also because, they were stylish. You can get them in you know, almost whatever color uh, that you wanted, which was you know, a little bit unheard of at, at the time when 
his shoes came in white, they came in black, or they came in like a dark navy blue, and that was it. So you had a combination of a uh, an underground subculture that had a very a specific demand for a shoe and also there was this fashion angle that they wanted it to you know look how they wanted it to look so this a combination of all of these different factors kind of contributed to not just the success of vans but just uh, the concept of a trendy sports shoe and more on the american sneakers story here on our american stories with Nicholas Smith, and we're talking about his book, a really great read, Kicks, about the history of American sneakers. The next big influence in the world of sneakers didn't come from the sports world. It came from the music world, breakdancing, and then soon after, rap artists like Run DMC and the Beastie Boys would have their influence on the world of sneakers. Talk about that period. So before we get to the 80s, we'll have to stretch back a decade and talk about the 70s. Now, earlier I mentioned, uh, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would have the, you know, Adidas shoe and Walt Frazier would have his Puma shoe. These shoes proved very popular in the the budding uh, hip-hop movement. You know, as people were starting to develop uh, and invent breakdancing, people wanted to have a, a, a style all to themselves. So these breakdancing crews would often dress the same. And, you know, they would all be wearing the same pairs of Adidas, or they would all be wearing the same pairs of Nike or of the, uh, the Puma shoe. So these shoes were already kind of built in to a subculture. Now, when a hip-hop group like Run DMC comes along, they originally didn't have the uh, the style that we know them of today. They didn't have the black leather jackets, the Adidas track suits, the the hats, or the uh, the famous black and white superstar shoe. They dressed in you know kind of uncool looking plaid suits. But it wasn't until they started dressing like the uh, the Queens neighborhood uh, that they came from that they started to kind of develop their own identity. And part of this identity came in that Adidas superstar shoe. Now, of course, if you have a very popular group, you know, wear a certain style of shoe, and if you're, you know, a fan of that group, you're probably going to wear the, the shoe or the brand yourself. And there was a, a famous incident where they were at a, a concert in Madison Square Garden, and just before they performed their famous song about their favorite shoe, My Adidas, they asked everyone in the audience to, to hold up their shoes, and all of these Adidas shoes went in the air. Now, fortunately, a uh, executive from Adidas was in the audience, and he saw the power that uh, the band had, and they were the first non-sports figures to have a shoe contract for an athletic shoe company. Let's talk about the year 1984 in Nike. It was a big year, but it was a bad year. They just posted their first ever quarterly loss. They were even into layoff mode. They needed to do something big and in the nation's biggest sport when it came to sneakers, and that's, of course, basketball and the NBA. You write about the fact that there were three big-name prospects that everyone thought Nike should pursue. John Stockton, who ended up at the Jazz. 
Charles Barkley at the Sixers, and Hakeem Olajuwon at the Houston Rockets. But a fourth name came up. Talk about number four, because he would help transform the company, and Nike made a big and astronomical bet on number four. Nike had shoes on players, but they didn't have shoes on the right players. And they wanted to kind of target some up-and-coming names in the 1984 draft. Now, that fourth name, Michael Jordan, they could have just offered him the same shoe contract as they were going to with, uh, with John Stockton and the others. But uh, the key point here is we're not going to uh, give Jordan just any old shoe contract like we've been giving the pros for the past couple of years. We're going to build an entire line, an entire signature shoe line and apparel line around Michael Jordan. Because they did this, and because Jordan was such uh, an electric player, they kind of invented something new. Now, of course, there was Clyde Frazier earlier, but there wasn't really the full force of a company's marketing behind one single player. One single player kind of presented as his own brand, the Air Jordan brand. And as Jordan started to get better and better, of course, people wanted to you know, know why was he so good. Uh, a couple of years after they started coming out with the Air Jordan shoe, they, they wanted to try something new with the marketing. So they hired a very young director named Spike Lee to direct a series of commercials starring him as his character, Mars Blockman from his first movie, and Michael Jordan. Now, these commercials were revolutionary for the time. Other sneaker commercials starring NBA stars were a bit cheesy. They were a bit you know, they, they they didn't really sell the product as much as, you know, okay, Larry Bird is wearing, you know, this brand of shoes, so you should also wear it. But what the uh the Spike Lee and, and Michael Jordan commercials did, they were they were funny. They were lighthearted. They didn't seem quite like a shoe commercial. They were kind of a, a comedic pairing with uh, Michael Jordan acting as the straight man. Now, the big tagline from these uh Spike Lee and Michael Jordan commercials was, you know, what makes Michael so great? Is it, uh, you know, the, the way he jumps? Is it, uh, you know, his haircut? Is it, is it the shoes? And is it the shoes? This became kind of the, uh, you know, the, the seed that Nike wanted to plant in everyone's mind. Okay, well, if, you know, Michael can do all these things in the Air Jordan shoe, well, maybe the Air Jordan shoe can help you play basketball better. Maybe it can help you jump higher. So there was kind of this this magic that Nike was tapping into with the Spike Lee and Michael Jordan commercials. And I don't know if this was conscious of them at the time, but it's a kind of a very old idea of the magical shoe. Now, what, uh, what makes Cinderella a princess? It's the glass slipper. What makes Dorothy come back from the land of Oz? It's her ruby slippers. What makes Michael Jordan jump so high? It's got to be the shoes. It's got to be the shoes. By the way, you, you also talk about this remarkable business deal. Jordan got royalties not only on the sale of each Air Jordan sold, but all Nike Air sneakers. What a big risk to take. But by the way, what big rewards for Jordan and for Nike, that deal? Oh, for sure. You know, without really the success he had on the court and without the success he had with Nike, we wouldn't have an entire Jordan brand spun off from Nike. It's funny, he's, you know, been out of the game for so many years but Nike Air Jordans are, you know, still still worn by people everywhere. You know, they still come out with new uh, Air Jordans all the time. There's new versions of uh, 
different colors of the old Air Jordan shoes from the 80s. So it was kind of a, uh, a unique way that really paid off for both the player and the company. Tell the story of where Nike got their new slogan, Just Do It, because it's a pretty unlikely source. This kind of came, you know, from a, the, the least likely source that you can think of. There was a, a murderer uh, on death row, and he uh, was, you know, okay, well, what, what are your last words? And they were, you know, along the lines of, okay, well, let's do this. Now, one of the executives saw this, he kind of thought, okay, well, I'll file that away. And it, when it became time to, you know, think up of a, a new slogan for the company, this popped into his head, just do it. You know, we know now that uh, Just Do It, it's as much a part of Nike as the, the swoosh is. So it's it's so baked into the company's DNA that it's difficult to, to separate them. And I should also add that uh, when the uh, Just Do It slogan came out, it, it became kind of a... Uh, a rallying cry, a point of pride for people. It, uh, you know, inspired them to, to do more. It inspired them to get out and exercise. Uh, there was one story where someone wrote into the company saying, I, I finally left my husband because I heard this slogan. So it, uh, it kind of, uh, again, tapped into a much greater idea uh, that was there that, you know, people sometimes need that little push. I can only guess most Americans now uh, have at least a few sneakers in their closet. We had started off this way, we'll come close to ending this way. But I look around now, Nicholas, and I mean, people are wearing sneakers almost all the time. In business casual situations, I see men in sneakers routinely, and women. Yeah, sneakers have kind of become the uh, the default shoe, whether we are going to the office or going to the uh, the supermarket. It's, uh, you know, what we... Uh, throw on to look nice or it's what we throw on just to have something on our feet and we can thank the uh the birth of casual friday for bringing the uh, sneakers into the boardroom indeed last thing what surprised you most telling this epic story of the sneakers i know i was sideswiped by this book and absorbed because in so many ways just as you had said early on this is the story of 20th century american culture I guess what surprised me most when I looked into it more and more, sneakers were there at so many different junctures in the 20th century. You know, even U.S. soldiers trained in sneakers going to uh, World War II. What I'm fascinated by is, let's take the Converse All-Star, for example. This is a shoe that, you know, if you're a a punk rocker, you might wear, or if you're a you're a teenager wanting to look hip, uh, you might wear. Or if you are, are a little bit older, may have worn in gym class many decades ago. It's a shoe that, that means so many different things to so many different people. I, I recently got back from a uh, vacation in Venice, Italy, and I saw an old nun wearing a pair of Converse All-Star sneakers, the, the Chuck Taylor shoes. So it, it's really a shoe that's that's just become almost generic, even though it was at one time a very specialized piece of athletic equipment. Yeah, I can't think of any American fashion brand in which I actually wore Chuck Taylors, and I played, I played high school basketball, and my daughter is wearing Chuck Taylors. The old man and the daughter wearing the same exact sneaker? Where else in American fashion? Exactly. And, you know, that that sneaker will probably be around for a, a long, long time after that. Well, Nicholas, thanks so much for your time and thanks for Kicks, the great American story of sneakers. Well, thank you for having me. And that was Nicholas Smith, the book Kicks, the great American story of sneakers, and it's available on Amazon 
And by the way, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org if you like what you hear and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You'll get the five best stories of the week. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and just sign up. And by the way, send the link to friends if you like what you're hearing. Nicholas Smith and the Sneaker Story of America. Nicholas Smith, the stories of sneakers in America, here on Our American Stories.